Uh, today, I'm talking with Luke Baumgarten, who is a writer, journalist, creative, the co-founder of Terrain, the co-founder of Treatment, co-founder of Fellow Coworking, co-founder of Range, basically the co-founder of everything. He's a self-proclaimed socialist and endorsed by me as an all-around great guy. Uh, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about procrastination, uh, his project and podcast called Range, um, and just in general, how uh, we get through with creating some of these things and um, some of the trials and tribulations with that. So without further ado, my name is Connor Bacon, and this is A Lapse in Time. This is a vibe. This is a vibe, isn't it? Shout out to Simmental for the music. For all your podcast theme, intro theme needs, actually. Cool. So today, talking with Luke Baumgarten. Um, Luke, if you want to just start out, you know, a little bit about, you know, your story, where you grew up, how you're, how you're so heavily involved with Spokane and the things that go on in Spokane, um, including, you know, your podcast, Range, which you guys can check out on all podcast media sites. Wherever you get your podcast, rangemedia.co, if you also, there's a newsletter component, if you like that. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Chatteroy, which is north of Mead, Spokane County. Country boy, but my... Uh, my mom's mom was the matriarch of the extended family, like uh, the sun that our little solar system revolved around like pre- for a, the longest time. Like none of her siblings, none of my aunts and uncles had like moved more than like five miles away from grandma's house, except for us who lived out in the country. So like grew up kind of as a North side kid, but also as a country kid. I don't know. Like I, the whole journey kind of probably starts when I really, really gravitated to feeling like a little bit of an outcast, feeling a little bit when we would play like army as kids out in the middle of the woods. Like I was always the guy that like wanted to get gut shot early on and then like just like die a slow death, you know, like kind of a theatrical kid. Gravitated toward books and movies pretty early. So I think like formal for me was like watching movies, watching Roger Ebert, you know, Siskel and Ebert, like thinking about the craft of of making art but not necessarily having any sense that that's a thing you could do. Cause like coming, you know, my dad was a janitor and my mom was a teacher's aide. It was like, you're going to go to college cause that's like what you're supposed to do. And like, but there was never an idea that like you could be a writer or you could be a creative, like that, that literally, I didn't call myself a writer until I'd been a full-time journalist for like four years. Yeah. Uh, so it was a really fascinating sort of trip for me to be like, college is kind of a utilitarian thing. Education is a utilitarian thing. It helps you sort of, you know, build a better life for yourself than, you know, we were able to speaking in like the, the language of my parents. But then when I get to college, so I was like a math and computer science major because I like math. I like computers. I'm a, I'm a big nerd. I'm a big gamer. Uh, But in 1999, there weren't like video game development programs. So I was like learning how to basically, uh, be Michael Bolton from office space. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) making database software and learning about matrices and object oriented programming, like two thousands web 1.0 stuff, not even, not even web stuff, more like C plus plus. Yeah. And it just didn't, they didn't feel any like creative. And meanwhile, I've sort of by happenstance gone to Gonzaga, which is like this Jesuit institution where, you know, you're studying 
you have to, even if you're an engineering kid, you have to study philosophy, you have to study literature, you have to study religious studies and all, all the humanities, history. And like, that's the stuff I really, really loved. And it's the stuff that I could, as a guy who didn't get diagnosed with ADD until I was in my 30s, passion sort of fuels focus for us or for me anyways. Yeah. And I, so I couldn't understand and I always beat myself up for the longest time, especially in elementary school and middle school and high school. Like I couldn't bring myself to do my homework and I would always test really well. And I was actually in gifted programs, but I, my grades were always dog shit. Yeah. And I felt so bad for <laughs> about that for the longest time. And it's, and really, so part of my creative journey has been like a now, 40 year journey more or less of like coming to terms and acceptance of with like the weird way my brain works and how, how kind of magical it is in some ways. But also it means that I'm not, I'm not particularly good at being like, a, uh, I'm not particularly good at just really sitting down and powering through shit that isn't immediately interesting to me. Yeah. Well, and so do you find though, like when something is immediately interesting, right? That like you do have that almost like laser focus of, I yeah, think like sure. I find myself when, you know, if there's something that I'm like, I think it even comes with ease when something becomes really easy to me, it's like difficult for me to want to sit down and really learn it. But when I get sucked into something and it like can consume that, um, you know, that bit of my brain that just needs to like really hyper focus into something, yeah. then it's like, then you feel probably how a lot of people just feel normal, you know, or it's right. like, oh, I can really just focus on this one thing. Yeah. Um, and so does that, so do you think that translates into, because, you know, as I said in the intro, you have, you're like this incubator of all these different businesses and stuff. Do you think that that has to do with that? Like, like finding something that you're really good at getting that up and going and putting all your attention into that. And then, um, at that point, maybe like losing a bit of that focus, not in a bad way, but just like, you know, like that focus finds another avenue and then that's what causes you to, um, explore these other outlets, these other businesses. And yeah, kind of. So like I go to college and I don't know what I want to do. I get, I get, end up getting degrees in philosophy and English and I still don't really know what I want to do. And I get to study abroad for a year and I still don't really know what I want to do. And I graduate and I go get a job in Seattle. Like all my friends moved away from Spokane. Uh, and especially the, nobody, nobody who was coming to Spokane for Gonzaga at that time in like the 2003 era was sticking around Spokane and unless they had like a court order or they were you know, <laughs> yeah. in jail, like <laughs> nobody wanted to stick. It was willingly there. So I, it w- kind of somewhat uncritically, I just was like, okay, cool. I guess I'm, my buddies are moving to back to Seattle. So I'm going to move to Seattle too and see where that takes me. Yeah. Um, I had a sense though that like I want, I like, I always liked writing. I just loved it. And so I spent a really kind of unhappy, unproductive year in Seattle, just working at a, at a startup job. And, but then I was like finding this outlet cause blogging had just kind of become a thing. So I'm dating myself here. <laughs> and so I would find myself, you know, being just deeply, brutally unhappy at work. And then I would go, to uh tower records and buy a bunch of albums or i would go you know watch the just absolutely incredible independent film that's you know available at the guild 45th or whatever these independent movie theaters that we just didn't have anything like in spokane this was before the the magic lantern reopened so and then i would just write about it and that was like the only place that i felt kind of content it was the only place that i felt really good about anything uh at least at that time in my life and so I started thinking, it's, so it's weird. Like when people talk about, I have a passion, I knew that I wanted to do this thing from the very beginning. It's like, I've actually never felt that about anything I do. Even 
the thing that I think I'm objectively best at in the world, which is writing. Like I still kind of had to convince myself or I don't know. There was no aha moment. There was no love at first sight for anything I've ever done for whatever reason. And so, but you do get an immense, (laughs) immense like satisfaction out of doing things you're really, really good at. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I'm really good at writing. Do you think that that writing is like that endless pursuit? And maybe that's why I think I found that like with photography, right? That I don't think I'll ever be, or maybe at some point in my life, like, you know, you can reach that, um, like Bresson level of mm. photography or whatever. Yeah. It's like, is I, I feel like writing probably is a similar thing, right? Where you, um, it, it's almost like that, like you're chasing that, like, okay, but I like, there's always something to improve at. I can always be better at this. I can always improve. And maybe that's what keeps that, like, maybe that's the, the restraint that we need to like be able to attain like higher levels of these things, right? Like with writing, especially is you have all this freedom, like you can write about whatever you want, but then it's like, well, how do you like craft these stories masterfully? How do you come up with these concepts? How do you like, you know, like maybe that aspect of it, like keeps it interesting. Totally. And insofar as I'm like a, I'm kind of like, I'm an idea nerd guy. Like I, I also like the, there's an art, but also a craft and a, um, it's like basically thinking through ideas and then structuring them in a way that where they're maximally effective. Right. And that can be through sort of narrative storytelling. Like if you want to really grab somebody emotionally, it can also be sort of rhetorical or you do it like with rhetoric. If you're trying to persuade somebody, you're like, I'm in, in the, the highest sort of form of that I think can be doing a little bit of both where you're like sort of in and, and journalism, I think at its best, and, and it can be exploited too, but it really does both of those things. Well, where you're like, especially if you're worried about social issues or justice, um, you can tell a really heartbreaking story, but then also sort of craft a argument or some sort of structure to sort of be like, this person just got their life completely destroyed by something. Uh, Here's how it might be fixed. Here's how we might make it, if not better for this person, because maybe it's, maybe that person's dead now. Maybe that person can't come back from this or they have so much trauma. It's going to be tough, but we can always, we can, maybe fix fix it for the next person right yeah um yeah, that's really powerful to me because you're right it's like but i also think and maybe this is true of photography too you also come to a moment you come to a subject and there's problems to be solved in that moment too so it's not about attaining like some sort of platonic idea of perfection as of like okay this is the story what's the best way to tell the story or if you know you're on a shoot it's like here are the lighting conditions here's the the subject here's the idea. What's, how do I solve the problem with the tools that I have? And, and so that never gets old for me. It's like you're upgrading your tools to handle problems forever. Yeah. Those problems will probably never be solved. You'll never be like, Oh, I know exactly how to shoot this. I know exactly how to write this. But like, as time goes on, you go, okay, I can come into this situation and now I have different tools to then problem solve similar problems. Yeah. But, and may, I think that's really appealing to me probably for that very reason yeah. of like, I might never master this, but I probably get to a point where I know, like at least which tools to bring, but then I still have to solve the problem of like, okay, like all the the things that are always going to be out of your control, like how the story for writing or the setting for photography, the the people, how they interact, how the, you know, like how the story actually unfolded versus maybe how you want to tell it. And, yeah. and, so, and for me, I don't know how you feel about this with our sort of mutual um, ADD appreciation society we have going on here. Sometimes <laughs> like storytelling is an act of problem solving in itself. And what I've found is that my, my brain can be so sort of problem focused that once if I solve the problem of the story, but the story is not finished yet, it's really hard for me to actually finish the story. So like I've had, I've had like entire novels that I'm like figuring out how to tell the story I want to tell. 
in real time when you're actually typing. But then I figure out like what the connective tissue is. I'm yeah. like, oh, I actually know how I want to tell the story and all the, all the character arcs. And then that's when it stalls for me. It's like yeah. once I figure out, once I solve the problem, it's not always important to actually finish the piece. So the problem is part of the creative flow for you, uh, like having that restraint or that. No, and I think it's, and I actually think it might be like the main. Yeah, like the, the driving main force. driving force for me personally. And yeah, and I do love crafting like a, a, a individually beautiful sentence. And I love like sort of showing off what I can do as a writer. But weirdly, yeah, what I found is that, and so like for a long time I was like, oh, I'm just trying to be the cleverest, smartest, coolest, most thoughtful writer I can be. And that's what drives me. It's really now it's I'm, I'm actually trying to solve the problem of the story. And then it actually doesn't matter. And then maybe this is also age, but it's like it gets the cleverness or the ego, the ego driven portions of it get less and less important over time. Although I don't think ego ever really truly totally leaves the situation, but sure. That's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm just soaking that in for a second, I think. It's really interesting because <laughs> I personally have pined on, okay, like why? And I think like maybe the answer behind um, productivity lies somewhere in here as well, right? Like how do you remain productive? How do you continue to be productive? And I think like since COVID has hit outside of work stuff and just my everyday like creativity and whatever, like, you know, I got a new camera and I have all this stuff and I don't use it because I feel like I don't have any, there's no problems for me to solve. It's like I, I, I lack you know, and some of that like, has to do with social engagement and not going out and seeing people. And it's, I just don't have any problems to solve currently. And that's really interesting. You say that because now I'm like, well, shit, like <laughs> maybe I need to not create problems in my life, but maybe that's where like finding issues. And I think maybe that's the basis of good design in general, right? Is finding yeah. an issue and figuring out how to solve it. Um, well, let me, can we, can I unpack this a little yeah, bit more? Because I've, please. you've been, you were talking about procrastination and I've just sort of accepted procrastination as part of my life. And I recently, I think had a kind of a, <laughs> So my workflow at the Inlander, so I was a, I was a arts and culture editor, writer, uh, and eventually did some social justice reporting and, and stuff like that kind of toward the end of my life. But the, the majority of stuff I was doing was sort of telling cultural stories. And, and, and it's incredibly hard work. Like we, we, you and I worked together at an advertising agency. Um, when I first jumped into advertising, uh, after being an all weekly journalist, I thought I was going to get fired or that I had not, it wasn't panning out and my bosses were just going to let me go. Cause the work, the workload was like not to make another office space reference and continue dating myself. It was like, I do 15 minutes of real actual work every week yeah. because it's just the, there's a, there's a, um, an intensity to journalism that is just so all encompassing, especially when you're a small paper and you've got, everybody's got a lot wear a lot of hats, but taking people's stories and doing right by them. If, if you're not a complete psychopath demands you to demands a ton of time, a ton of attention, a ton of care and shit. What was my point? Oh, so I would, but it got me into this, but because my brain works the way that it does, I would agonize over that work, procrastinate endlessly and then end up pulling probably three or four all nighters a month just to get the work done. Um, and so for a long time, I kind of accepted that, that just like, that's the way the broken bra way my brain is. Then I eventually got diagnosed with ADD and I was like, okay, well I'm just ADD. So this is how I guess my things work. Um, I think that what sort of manifests as like that sort of anxiety or that procrastination is like, I think our unconscious minds do so much more work than we give them credit for. And we have no access to that stuff. It's a, it's a black box. And so I had this 
realization a couple weeks ago that I posted about and then had a bunch of people who I also recognize as my friends who are also have ADD where I said something to the effect of like the feeling that I love the most is when you start working on a story or you, or whatever you're working on, you get to a point where you're like, I think it, I don't know if I can solve this problem. I think I can't get out of this. You know, I was writing an essay at the time. I, the, the subject isn't even important. I was like, I know I need to get from point A to point B. And at some point I hit a roadblock where it's like, I don't know how to get around this roadblock or I don't know how to like create the road. And it's like two in the morning and I'm an increasingly old person. So I can't do the all nighter thing anymore. And so I went to bed and I woke up and the road was already cleared for me and I was able to finish the thing. Yeah. So I think what I've realized and then with doing this podcast thing and we just suffered through some, so I don't know if we want to tell the background, you've been helping me edit my podcast and and engineer the podcast that I work on. And I think what I realized is there's a way to control the procrastination impulse, which I think is actually a, my subconscious mind wants to work on this a little bit and mechanism And so like, if I can just do, if I can bring myself to just do a little bit of work. So if I can bring, if I can force myself, because I'm not productive if I feel like I'm forcing myself and I space off and I, that's why I have 300 tabs open on my browser at all hours. I've seen them. Yeah. You can confirm. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating (laughs) that if like, so in the, in the example of like finishing off what you've already started editing on the podcast, which means adding an intro and outro, which generally for me means I I write a little essay basically and then uh, read it out, but then also riff on it in real time as I'm going. That takes probably five or six or seven hours, but I think some portion of that can be done subconsciously. So what I've like done well and I need to like train myself and force myself to do more is like, do the first two hours of that work or do the first hour of that work or do however much of that work I can, my brain will allow me to do before it's like, fuck you. I need to go focus on something else. I, I literally will not allow you to focus on this anymore. Cause that's really how my ADD manifests or how it feels to me. And then I can put it away and even it can, for a couple of days and come back feeling like I have now formulated something in my mind that makes what would have been an eight hour sort of death march to get 10 minutes of audio now becomes an hour of where I sketch out what I want to say. And it's kind of done. So I try not to go too deep into like the psychological side of like, why, like, you know, psychoanalyzing everything. But I think that procrastination in general is a way of our brain being like, like we know how to do this. You only need this amount of time. And so when we're given this yeah. kind of amorphous amount of time and saying, okay, well say that I have a week to like, you know, you have basically your whole entire life to do those 10 minutes of that podcast because it just depends on whenever you want to release it. Right. Um, but as soon as you go, okay, I'm doing a podcast a week. I need to make sure this is done. Then your brain goes, okay, well we only need one hour to do that. So if you're trying to do it three days before your <laughs> deadline, it goes, well, why the fuck would we do it now? We could just wait until that hour right. before. And so I think that's where the last minute, especially um, I think what you're talking about is really valuable for like, overcoming mental obstacles with things that you don't want to do or you don't feel like you 
um, yeah, like you said, like you don't feel like you have the problem solving for it yet. Yeah. Um, but I think the procrastinating in general is like, you know that you can record that 10 minutes of audio in just an hour, maybe two hours or whatever. Um, but when you sit down and you know, okay, well I have all these, I have nine hours or I have 10 hours to do it. And your brain's just like, fuck off. Like, let's go do something else because <laughs> you can, you can feel like our subconscious mind is definitely smarter than our well, conscious mind. So I think that's probably kind of true, but I also think that like, if I, maybe it's like I'm not good enough at audio stuff yet or there's like a separate brain process that doesn't really talk to that, the procrastination process that's kind of a perfectionist. Because like when I, then you get this in this panic mode where it has to be perfect and that's why I would always pull those all-nighters. Yeah. Um, so. And that's probably, yeah, that's probably putting perfectionism in with, which, or maybe not pure perfectionism, but like putting in that, um, like that just want to like put out a good product yeah. in with procrastination as well. Um, because like, I think procrastination for doing the garbage, doing the laundry is far different maybe than procrastinating for a project that you really care about. So maybe yeah. that's where those two, yeah, those are probably different. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I just think that like what I've sort of discovered about myself is like do a little bit of work, but don't push, like don't beat yourself up because we just get in these like shame cycles. And I think this is one of the more toxic things about American life in general and just the way we're raised to feel like we're profit centers for people. We have to always be working productively towards something. And because we have a really weird idea of what work actually is, productivity needs to be like, I'm actively doing something at this moment. And I don't think creative people, your most productive hours aren't necessarily when you're actually at the keyboard typing or when you're behind the lens of the, the camera. Sometimes the, those productive hours are, you don't even realize you're thinking about something, but your brain's running cycles in the background. And so I guess when I start panicking, but my, your subconscious still needs a certain amount of data, right? So that's where I think procrastination can either be a fear-based mechanism or it can be a productive mechanism, maybe. And I'm, I'm kind of spitballing in real time, so I no, might just I, be talking out of my ass. No, I agree. But like, I have a sense that like sometimes I'm procrastinating because I don't know what a mess I'm about to wade into, right? right? I just conducted an interview. I'm not talking about the one we just got done doing. I'm, talking, I'm, this, I'm speaking abstractly. Sometimes I get into an interview. I'm like, that was really good. I feel I have an emotionally resonant feeling about it but I also don't know how much of a mess the audio is going to be, you know what I mean? Or whatever, sure. what, whatever yeah. the thing is, that's what I'm thinking about a lot now. So it's like, well, cause you're probably worried more. I mean, and as you should be, I think you're worried more about the product and less about the actual execution. Right. Right. So like with the podcast, especially, which we can, this can segue into range. Um, I think like for you, right? Like the, what's important is the message. What's important is the engagement. That's yeah. the important part. And so then, that is just at the mercy of the execution and the execution can sometimes get a little messy if right. <laughs> we've seen. Totally. Well, and, and once you've already, once you've recorded a conversation, unlike writing where I can take a single sentence quote that I pull from somebody and put that at any point in the story that I want to, something like a, an interview format podcast or something, you, you're, you have more rails and more, you know, um, constraints. But I do think there's something so again, though, like let's do like thinking like a uh, like a scientist or something like a side by side. I could take the same interview that actually is. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. It was a really powerful and meaningful interview. But then you go back and start listening to it. And it's like, oh, my God, we're all over the place. We're talking about one thing and then we're talking about another. And there's there's no inherent structure here. So what am I going to have to do? 
or we were talking about stuff kind of insidery in a way that like maybe the listener doesn't know all the history about this one particular part of, you know, local, the local criminal justice system. Yeah, yeah. that's me. <laughs> so now I need to go like add a little clip in. So what I found is like you could take the same interview mm-hmm. and if my procrast, if I haven't like sort of at least done a one sweep of the thing or listen to the first half an hour or something, or just even sometimes getting the file set up and ready to go. Um, the procrastination is a fear-based thing. Mm. Whereas if I get it set up and I do the first listen and I still have three or four days to get the thing done, then the procrastination is less that it's more like, okay, now I'm, I'm trusting that some, some part of my brain is going to be working on this problem uh, as I'm doing other stuff. And now when I dive back in, it might actually get close to taking me only an hour as opposed to taking me eight, you know? So if that makes sense, it's like, well, it's just taking that first step, right? Taking a yeah. step towards your goal versus looking at the whole. I think there's like people with different types of minds that can handle different types of you know tasks or whatever, right? There's like, yeah. I, yeah. like and I don't know about you personally, I'm really good at doing small tasks within an overarching large task. Now, mm-hmm. if you were to just say, okay, one day you're like, okay, make a podcast, just do it right now. I would have a really hard time. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure there's some people that probably can do it. But if you're like, okay, well, first I need to learn how microphones work. And then I can dive into that and I can figure all that out and understand that. And then I can move into the next part and figure out, okay, well, how does a mixer work? Um, and so I think, you know, to that point, like taking the first step and then digesting yeah. it and kind yeah. of um, that, that definitely reduces a lot of the anxiety around it. Because once you have an understanding of it, then like, then you have no problem doing right. it. Right. Right. And then once you get really, really good at something like writing or editing, then it's like, I know for a fact that I don't have, I can, I can edit this in an hour or two hours or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> and I think that actually does tie in a little bit to like all the weird random things that I've done in my life can't, were a response to like, I want to try to solve a problem and I don't know exactly what that problem is or I know what the problem is. I don't know what the solution is. And then all of a sudden you accidentally create a nonprofit that, you know, is like a, at this point, like a, has a $400,000 budget every year. Cause you, but your initial instinct was just, I want to stop my creative friends from moving away from Spokane. Like, yeah, I'm sick of writing a story about Connor Bacon and his new band. And then three weeks later, Connor, I see Connor post on MySpace at the time or like Facebook now or whatever. Move to Seattle. TikTok. <laughs> I'm moving to Seattle. Yeah. Trying to get better. Cause we're going to make there. it. Yeah. And so, when you're young and like in your twenties, my particular kind of creativity was like this felt like this incredibly powerful force that I just had to unleash and I could do anything with it, you know? Yeah. And when you're, when you're, you know, I was a writer and an editor, it was a lot of work, but it was like one thing. And I spent the majority of my life thinking about that and and working on it. And, you know, um, it was all I focused on. And then like, as my interests and, like sort of creative problem solving sort of went in different directions. Like, Oh, now we're starting a nonprofit or at least a, like an art party to start. And that became a nonprofit to help keep my friends around because journalism couldn't do that on its own. The the problem had to lie outside of writing at that time. Then it's like, well, now I've got a, you know, my friends and I have this organization we started or this thing that we started that we need to keep doing. Yeah. Um, and you're like, Oh shit, we're deep. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And so it's like around. people like us, like you end up starting all these random things and then, and at least the way that I've worked, it's like, I'm always trying to make things that like outlive me or that like have, you know, a deep enough impact that people want them around, whether or not I'm 
devoting a hundred percent of my time to them or not. And so I've, I think, and I don't know if this is true of just me as a person, but like the world is not really built around, it's not built to incentivize or uh, even reward the sort of shit that like ADD brains do really, really well. Like, I think we're like, and I, I think you're this way too. So it's, it's not surprising to me that you're a fellow traveler. It's like, I can, without, sometimes my brain will just go on this wild trip. I'll just have this like jazz odyssey of a brainstorm without even really trying. And all of a sudden I've just envisioned what I want a co-working space to be. I mean, and we're, we're on it right now. And we're kind of on it right <laughs> and now. And to that point, I mean, that's like, that's what you did with range, right? It was yeah. like, you saw a problem and you were like, well, I should start a podcast about it. Like now I should I need, start talking about it. I've like, literally never thought about how to record audio and it's hard and it's annoying and everything's analog. So it's all like way more kind of fiddly than digital and whatever. But, but, yeah, but then like, you know, unless you produce something at like what, what good was that? You know, what, what good, what value does society put on just having wild, crazy, awesome, amazing brainstorms? Sure. Right. It's, yeah. it's, and so like, there's a ton of guilt associated, at least for me, for a long, the longest time, I felt really, really guilty about what I was best at in the world, which was just like having these crazy brainstorms and cool ideas. And, uh, and it almost felt like unfair because it's so much fun that yeah. like, um, he's like, well, I really enjoy doing this. Why can't it be like <laughs> valuable for right. the rest of society? And, and then it's like, okay, now, now, but I also, you know, we started a co-working space, but I'm, ter I would not want to be the person managing this space because I would not be very good at that. That's not what I'm good at. So I get to have yeah. all the fun ideas and then other people have to <laughs> implement them or whatever, you know, yeah. get uh, to, get to, <laughs> or at some point, you know, and so they get to implement them. Yeah. And that, and that was actually the thing that I realized is like, there are people in this world, like our, the, the guy that is like the bookkeeper for our agency. Yeah he likes being a bookkeeper, you know? And yeah. so like, that was the other thing that I had to learn over time is like, people really like doing things. Sometimes people really like implementing the other, the ideas that other people have. And that's a really powerful thing as well. So I guess though, it's just like, for me, it's like, I don't think our society is set up really, really well to incentivize and value just creative expression as a pure form. Mm. And, um, we love art and we love artists, but people don't like paying for art, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. And then when you get into commercial artwork, right, which can pay the bills, but it's, it's client driven or whatever. It's, that's not really pure artistic expression. It doesn't mean it's not art, but it's not pure expression. And sure. So, and then when that comes back to sort of people who think the way that we think, um, I don't know. It, it just, for me, it like for a, the longest time created a lot of guilt around like the way I was spending my days, you know? how did you get around that? Like, how do you get to a point? I, Cause I think I feel the same thing where I go, um, you know, and I'll even, my, my mom will give me shit for it all the time. She'll go, well, you know, like when you were younger, you would always pick something up and then you'd learn it till you were okay at it. And then you'd go and find something else. And it kind of like in this, yeah, like not you, like a I'm bad light, but it was like, you know, why don't you just stick with this one thing and get right. really good at that? And it's like, well, because I get fucking bored. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. I can't just continue to do that. And, um, and I think, yeah, that's maybe that's where that guilt comes from too, is feeling like, well, maybe if I was just really good at this one thing, then the stars would align. But I don't think that's true. I think when I'm honestly, I feel the most 
in harmony and at peace when I'm juggling six different things and I'm learning JavaScript and I'm, you know, doing this podcasting every once in a while for fun and like all these other things. And I'm like, oh man, like I feel really good right now. Like juggling all these things is like, that feels really normal for me. Well, and I think you're helping me get around to my point. So thank you because I'm, I feel like my brain's too scared. Maybe I've had too much coffee to, to make this point clearly, but like, that's the thing. So when I was younger and I was just like really in that creative mode and um, I could do the work at the Inlander and still have a little bit of time to play around with these other things. Like that was the the time that I felt the most free. And because I was kind of in an editor, I was in an editor role. So I got to make some decisions at the paper and the paper, you know, the, the worst thing about alternative journalism is that you don't make very much money, but the best thing is that there are the same rules that like newspapers have. Sure. So I could just like sit down and if I had, if I had an idea for something, I could, you know, pitch it to my editor, uh, explain how I thought, think I wanted to do it and then just like go make it happen and create like a 20 page package or whatever, like, uh, and go find friends that wanted to do it with me and just like make it happen. And it felt awesome. And, um, like I created this, co- this college guide, the first year the Inlander did a college guide. I was like, I want this to be like, uh, like Hieronymus Bosch or like some sort of crazy, I want it to be well, like, it's going to be about like, maybe, you know, you're out of the house for the first time. So maybe, you're thinking about experimenting with drugs for the first time, or you're having sex for the first time, or you're just free. You're not under your parents' roof. So you're like, you could go wild. And that's the experience I had in college. Like I went wild for the better part of two years. And, uh, but it was this basically turned into this 20 page package out of nothing that was had, it was the first time I'd ever used like professional lighting. We got like our, our photographer, young Kwok, who's still the photographer, the, the Inlander did this like incredibly elaborate lighting package. I got some friends that I had met who were doing modeling, like who were um, more on the agency side of creative and were able to like help us wrangle a bunch of models, including my now wife was one of the people that we used and just created this like just absolutely bonkers, just like the weirdest, coolest, uh, college guide that I still like think is like amazing. And, and that was like what I did all day, every day for a few years. Yeah. And then I started getting really sort of tight. Like, I don't know, like at some point you get like creativity gets weighted down by responsibility in such a way that I I feel like what you're talking about really started to weigh on me. It's like, okay, well, what am I actually doing? What am I actually producing here? What value does this have for society, my particular thing where I can have a bunch of really cool ideas, but I can't really pull anything off on my own. You know, I think the thing you learn as a writer, if you aren't a complete and massive egotist, this is probably true of all art, but like, even if I'm like, you know, William Faulkner, I still need somebody to help me publish the book. Right. Right. And that's where like, even I, I guess maybe it's a process of like the most, individual acts still of art making or creative expression still require a pretty big team. Yeah. And if you're not an absolute monster, you recognize that it's not all just me. It's like, it wasn't just Andy Warhol. There was an entire factory of people. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time, I think devaluing my part of that process, which always felt like the fun stuff and the easy stuff, because when my brain's on, it's like really, it's like the easiest thing in the world. And so because I, you know, we grow up in a society where work is supposed to be hard. And for most people, it is hard. Most people, it's backbreaking labor or, you know, mind numbing office job. 
there was a disconnect from like the, 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 the biggest contributions I'm making to our community don't really feel like work and therefore maybe they don't have value, you know? Yeah. So it was a process of me sort of getting over that and recognizing that not only are there people who like implementing things, there aren't a lot of people who could figure out how to, or have an idea to start something in the first place. And that, that has value and that's cool. And people appreciate that. And it's enough. Maybe it's, maybe that's the thing. It's like, it's enough to just have the idea and see it through to a certain amount of completion. And then if somebody else takes over and helps it live forever, then that's actually a good thing. And it's really cool. Yeah. Does that make sense? I No, I think uh, to, to that point, I think that I might be on the opposite side of that. And what I've found is that I like the carrying out of other people's ideas. And that doesn't mean I don't like to have my own. I just like, I I, may, I might not know how to get that first step, that first, like, you know, like when I think about like starting a business is what I mean. Yeah. When I look yeah. at something like that and I go, how the fuck do you start a whole business? Like, yeah. where do I even start with that? But then if someone's like, okay, well this business exists and then I'm like, okay, cool. Now I know how to like, you know, enrich this part of the business and this part of the business and this, and like the little kind of granular things that all go into that, like that really like that works for me. But the, the, you know, the big thinking or the big like carrying out, I guess is like, I don't know. I just have like a mental block around that. I don't yeah. think I'm, so I think the world needs probably both of us, right? Like they need the the incubators and then they need the people that can like get inside of that incubation. And, you yeah. know, and I, I also think it's like what you, you can, you can do both. I, I think I actually serve that role for other people. Like, so I, you know, so this nonprofit terrain, if this is a Spokane based podcast, people have probably heard of terrain. The process that we went through to turn that from just like an art party that was technically not properly permitted and there may or may not have been a uh, police investigation after the first one <laughs> because we didn't know who to talk to to get the proper permits. What and is it, people, ask for forgiveness? Or? No, people, people, <laughs> yeah. like, there, was a, there was a rumor that there was a, like, a clan, like a, an illegal speakeasy operating in Spokane <laughs> when it was really just like the echoes of this one night event we put on improperly, right? Yeah. So there's all this learning you have to do that first time that becomes kind of like a crystallized intelligence that most people don't have. Yeah. And then that happened again when like, for whatever reason, I do like just sort of nuts and bolts problem solving. So when it came time to figure out how to turn it into an actual federal nonprofit, a 501c3, I took that on and I worked with the lawyers. Um, there's like this free legal clinic at Gonzaga. So they like helped us kind of create our bylaws, all this stuff, all the, all the company formation stuff that you're talking about, Connor, that freaks you out. I had done that cause I was trying to see this project through to fruition. So then when my, you know, three years ago, uh, my buddy Ross, um, started f talking about feast world kitchen, I was like, I don't actually, I don't have to be the visionary for feast, but I can, I have really concrete knowledge that I can go in tech, you know, sort of tactically, like you're helping me with the podcast. I can go help Ross and this other team figure out how to not step in every single pitfall that we stepped into terrain. And so like that actually, so being that for the feast team has actually helped me really recognize I'm glad that I don't have to have the vision for feast that Ross has for feast. I yeah. can just sort of be a role player and it's, that's also tremendously powerful. Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but I, it's like, you don't have to be exclusively one thing or the other. And actually 
and then like kind of creating the space for yourself to be like, well, there's the shit that I'm like the architect of. And then there's stuff where I just get to be the, the role player. Member. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. Right. That's cool. So then with range specifically, I guess we can talk a little bit more about that. Like you carry out almost all of it. Right. Cause it's like the thing about podcasts is like, you know, it's generally two to three people sitting down having conversations, but yours are much more edited, structured. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you have points that you, and very specific to things going on locally. Um, do you want to just talk a bit about like what range is, how you got into that? And then um, like, I, like just your specific process with that. Yeah. Back to when I, earlier in the thing, when I said, like, I didn't realize, I didn't sort of allow myself to think of myself as a writer until I was older. When I left journalism, it took me a couple of years to realize that I'd like left a piece of myself over there. So it's like almost in hindsight, I realized how important that was and maybe form formational. And while I never felt like maybe writing was love at first sight and I didn't realize it or I didn't know what love at first sight looks like. Right. So over time I was like, just, you know, we'd, we'd started all these different things and they all sort of filled some sort of need, but I found myself really missing that part of life. And then, you know, the world, you know, 2016 starts happening and, and the world's looking pretty rough and I'd never really paid much attention to podcasts and I'm so, I, I cannot read like as extensively as I want to. So I started listening to podcasts basically as a way of like understanding what was happening in the world and, and trying to connect with it and, and trying to kind of, it was like, I was sending myself back to school a little bit, mostly listening to like these really, really deep policy, nerdy um, podcasts and theoretical podcasts about like the the way we structure life and society and stuff. And I found myself feeling like I want, I need to get back into making this work um, and having these thoughts in public somewhat and, or sharing them with people and just like having conversations. Like that's my, some of my favorite work was just doing that work and, and, and doing it in Spokane, um, to sort of hopefully give people a little bit of what you can get from like a net of, you know, a podcast that's like obsessed with DC politics or whatever. It's like, can we do something about the, the lives and cultures of people in Spokane? Um, yeah. So anyways, that was just like a thing that I kicked around for the better part of four years. And then COVID happened and you know, all of our work went away at the agency and we're all, and you know, we were unemployed for a while and then we were on PPP funding, but there wasn't much work to do. And then meanwhile, like I started the podcast before George Floyd, but when, when the Floyd stuff happened and the protests started happening and then the reopen movement started happening and the reopen movement started, I started recognizing side friends who are writers who write about, you know, um, white nationalism and other forms of, you know, far right behavior. I was like, I'm seeing people that I recognize um, from white nationalism or Christian identity or just like neo-Nazism in the crowd of these, you know, supposedly business focused reopen protests. And then meet, and simultaneously you're sort of listening to national news stories about the rise of the proud boys and all of that stuff. And it's just like, there's a playbook being played out here that I'm seeing covered nationally, but that's definitely playing out locally. Yeah. And in this, and so it was like, can I create something that can shed light on that and like sort of connect Spokane to the rest of the country and to the world while still 
you know, staying focused on, on what's happening like right in our backyard and to start going with it. Yeah. And then, but because like my brain does the problem solving thing, I started like doing these podcasts and then I was like, well, I don't, and they were taking me like 12 hours or 13 hours or 20 hours to do an episode. And it was like, sometimes I just wanted to write a quick essay that would take three hours or something to do. And I couldn't do that in podcast. I'm not good enough at audio to do that yet. So I started a newsletter as well to start, just be able to sort of like get quick ideas that didn't, you know, warrant 20 hours of production. And so that's how the newsletter came about. And now it's like, okay, now that we have those two pieces, now there are, there's original reporting. Like we've, Spokane actually has a pretty good, robust media ecosystem. Like we've got two locally owned papers. We have one locally owned TV station, two nationally owned TV stations, but they have like a high degree of local control. So we, we actually don't see a lot of the, like the media rot that other uh, medium sized markets like ours have. Like we're really, really fortunate to have the amount of good journalism we have. And despite that, there are still stories that I'm not, that I'm curious about that I don't see anybody reporting on. Uh, so what can I do? What can range do to start sort of looking for those stories, finding them, becoming a place that people trust to sort of come with their stories and then reporting those out. And so that's the latest thing we've been adding. We just did our first piece of original reporting um, about a farm worker in Othello, which is like central Washington, not only a couple hours from here who caught COVID at work, he was here on an, an H2A visa, so a, like a farm worker visa for Mexico. Caught COVID. Seems like was not properly told that he had been exposed. Was told to isolate as a precaution. He was told he may or may not have to pay money for a COVID test, so he didn't get tested because he didn't want to spend the money. Because yeah. like when you're a farm worker, you're only here for three or four months or right. six months or a year sometimes, but you're sending all as much money as you can back to your family in Mexico, and that's exactly what he was doing. So yeah. if you're making only a few hundred bucks a week and you have to spend 200 of that every time you have a COVID scare, like are you are you going to do that? Like does, is that a reasonable thing to expect of people? I don't think it is. And right. so... Long story short, he has a stroke when no one's around because he's been put in, like his whole cohort's been put in isolation. He has a stroke, and I think the only thing that saved his life was that his wife happened to FaceTime him yeah. from Mexico just to check in, and she finds her husband in the in the middle of a stroke. Jeez. So, like, that's a story that had not been told anywhere. The Inlander actually ended up writing about it the same week we did, so we got to the story at the same time, but that, those are the sorts of stories. It's like, I spent the better part I spent a decade of my young career thinking about nothing but the news, the things that happen in our area as my job. And then I left that, but I've still kept very informed. Like I'm a, I'm a high information news consumer of like local stuff. And despite that, I don't really know how the our agricultural industry works. I don't know how any of that stuff works because it's not really covered regularly by the traditional media. Like we focus that that interview we just did today with Kitty Klitsky for the for Range. I don't even know how our county commission works as well as I know how the city council works. Yeah. And the county commission is a massively influential thing. So just the way that media covers things, you tend to focus on 
stuff like the city council. And so there's these big gaps in my knowledge. And part of, so part of what I'm doing is like teaching myself how this shit works and talking to people who know how it works so I can like, you know, learn myself and then hopefully sharing that with other people. Yeah. And then how do you go about, so for like that story specifically, how did you go about getting, do you have like reporters that you like send out and they talk to the people and get the, I guess it's, it's hard for, that's why I think I'm such a big fan of range because I've lived here forever. Um, I lived in Spokane forever and I, and I don't know where to get good news about the city. You know, it's like we have our own, like, you know, there's the KXLYs and the the MKHQs and stuff like that. And, um, but it's like a lot of that is, you know, this, this happened over in this neighborhood and there was shootings and stuff like that. And it's like, where do you get the information about like what's going on with the inner workings, like housing, right? Like the housing episodes have been really, really cool to listen to because as someone who is, you know, a renter, it's like, you know, you go look for my leases up in March and you go and you're trying to find housing anywhere and there's nothing, there's literally nothing. And everything that there is is super expensive. My friends can't find places to stay. And like I said, I've lived here forever. That, that, this hasn't been like that. Like, the, no. you know, we, we kind of grew up knowing like, oh yeah, I might, you know, hit my twenties, be able to buy a house. And I think what we're finding now is like, there's no way, <laughs> like there is absolutely no way. So, um, yeah, like how do, I guess a, a better question would be, um, like, where do we go? Like range, obviously where, like, how do you find your sources for this stuff? Like, what are you, are you going right to them or? I mostly, yeah. So I, like I've, because I've done been in this world for so long, like I just know people, yeah. who, you know, like I've known kid like the, Kitty Klitsky from FutureWise, they're working on basically a urban growth management campaign to try to get, try to stop sprawl, basically. Yeah. I've known Kitty for like 12 years because she started coming to the art events, you know, and I know her, her and her husband and stuff. And so I just have like f- friends that, we, you know, we all started as like young people eating shit at like our entry level jobs mm-hmm. or whatever. And then eventually we became the people that are like working on this stuff and we've stuck around. And so... I just know a lot of those people, but then I don't sometimes. So like with, yeah. in the case of Terry Anderson, the the tenants union woman, I like went to those people that I trust and I was like, I'm thinking about having like, what do you, what are your thoughts on this person or who should I go talk to about this? Yeah. And then finding freelancers though. So there's sort of like in traditional journalism, you try to keep like the opinion section and the, the original reporting fact-based journalism section uh, separate. Right. I don't do that at range. Cause I think like objective journalism is a lie. It's not real. We all have biases. It's sure. better if we just say, Hey, this is how I feel. I am this person. I'm Luke. I'm reporting from this angle. Uh, and you either, you can like that or not like that. And I'm, it doesn't mean that I'm unfair to people that don't feel the same way. Like you, you strive. I think it's actually more fair to say, this is who I am. This is the perspective I'm coming from. Now we're going to tackle this issue. And I lean toward being on side A. I'm gonna, still going to try to treat side B fairly. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, Which I think is the basis of any good argument or discussion, right? right? Is seeing, being able to argue for your opponent, but still yeah. holding your own. Totally. Opinion. And But at the same time, I don't necessarily want to be the guy doing all the, the range opinions and the guy reporting all of the stories. I don't want, I don't have time for it too. I was not trained as a reporter. It's a skill that I picked up over the years at the Inlander. But there are people, kids going to journalism school to do that. There are not very many good journalism jobs in the world, and especially not for people of color. So, like, one of the things I've been thinking about is how can I create, if this thing were to grow into something that could support more than just me or even support me someday, what steps can I take to 
create a newsroom where, so in the case of this farm worker story, I really felt passionately that this guy maybe has conversational English, but probably doesn't have much English at all. Cause he's, he's literally traveling on his visa up here. He's surrounded by other generally speaking, Latin American farm workers. There's not much need to sort of learn English when you sit in a warehouse all day packing fruit or you sit in the fields all day picking fruit and then you just go home to your barracks at night you know, like the bunk you literally people sleep in like dorm bunk bed barracks yeah. situations yeah. so it's like if you're gonna tell that person's story and you're gonna ask for that person's trust you have to come with something and what I really wanted to do with that particular story was like come with a writer who could speak and to that person in their native tongue. So found Daisy Zavala, who's still actually a student down at WSU, but she's bilingual. She was grew up in Wenatchee. She was a farm worker herself at different points in her life. And she was able to speak to these people in in Spanish, in their first language, you know get their story. And now we're actually going to translate the story into Spanish. She actually, that's sitting on my, that's what I got to do after this is cool. get that live because like there's this whole thing in journalism, you know, even, and it's even true of like Hilliard or West central in Spokane, right? The way we cover neighborhoods that we don't live in can be sort of objectifying, right? It's like, you know, the cops spend more, you know, so it's like somebody gets killed in West central, a reporter who might live on the South Hill comes in and it's like, Oh, you know, there's, there's cars on blocks and like the, the, the yards are Brown and this man died in the street or something like that. You know, it's an extra, it's like, are you reporting about the community? Sure. Are you like pointing and laughing or are you reporting for the community? Are you sort of bringing solutions back to the community in ways that might stop that guy from ending up dead in the street next time? You know what I mean? The next guy. And having, I think, I mean, to to that specific point, um, you know, as someone who just recently moved up to the north side, I, I think that there's a lot of value in um, the whole city looking at, like, you know, like people in the South Hill looking at issues in West Central yeah. and being like, okay, like I, I'm st- like I'm still somewhat responsible for that, and not Absolutely. just being like, well, that's just a part of the city. That's you know, like they have their own things over there. It's like, well, like what can we do to make you know like make your neighborhood better, like get to know your neighbors, yeah. I think is one. And, um, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's a certain sense of, um, responsibility that I think could be really important in, you know, making it a better place for everyone to live. If, you know, everyone's involved in the South Hill, people aren't just like, well, like, you know, it just, those well, things happen. And, and, you know, going back a hundred years, like there were these things called, have you heard of redlining? I've heard of the term. So it's basically, it, it gets sort of used, um, it's a form of like racist exclusionary housing policy where back at some point in the mid century realtors base literally like colored parts of sections of cities, red colored them, yellow colored them blue and colored them green. Right. So for like low income and basically the red sections of town were the shitty parts of town, which generally in most places equated to the places where immigrants lived or the places where black people lived or whatever. In, in our context, it's like Hilliard. It's like West Central. Right. But it's not the whole part. Like, cause like the part of West Central where it's like mansions on the cliff, we're always part of the green zone. Right. I happen to live in a green zone on the mid South Hill. And I look at the amazing place that I get to live. Isn't just the product of like the last 10 years or whatever. It's the product of a hundred years of both 
positive development in my neighborhood, but negative racist exclusionary policies in these other neighborhoods mm. that literally pushed wealth into those green zones that had been sort of predecided upon and kept wealth out of the red zones. Sure. Right. Yeah. And then if you look at our episode, the first episode we did on housing, I did, I just put up this thing that a buddy of mine who's a historian put side by side the redlining map of Spokane from the thirties and the 90 day delinquency on your utility bills graph the heat map of like who is, you know, more than 90 days delinquent on their utility bills during COVID. Yeah. So the same 80 years of difference. Yeah. It's not exactly correlated, but sure. the, the biggest concentrations are still Hilliard and West central. Mm-hmm. So the, that, that poverty has persisted for 80 years. So like when I'm, th- when we're thinking about the conversation we just had today about the urban growth boundary and preventing sprawl, that's not a decision like getting that fixed, getting that shit taken care of is going to reverberate and echo and actually get louder and more important, you know, assuming the world doesn't like burst into flames and fall off its axis. Like that is that those are decisions that are going to, there's going to be felt 80 years from now. You know? But I mean, so then is the goal then to integrate and quit pushing people out of the core and rather just like integrate the, the neighborhoods and like try like, well, I guess what is the, like, is there a, I think, you know, it's like, who knows? Cause no, nobody's done this well yet. You yeah. know, and we're, you know, and I actually wish Spokane had a little bit more time to think and plan because I think, and that's like the double-edged sword of this. It's like we, I started, we started terrain 13 years ago now trying to keep people from leaving Spokane, recognizing that at some point, if we make it an interesting place for artists, art, artists and creative people are the, are the leading edge of culture, which means that they are the first people in a city they're also tend to be the first people to get pushed out. So the moment it started feeling like, Oh, people aren't leaving Spokane. That's cool. That's a win. Oh, now actually it seems like people, creative people are coming to Spokane. Mm -hmm. Our friend, Alyssa ball, who's like one of my favorite people in the world was the, wrote the horoscope and she's an artist and a poet. And she wrote the horoscope for Seattle weekly for like a long time. She moved to Spokane like seven or eight years ago because she yeah. got priced out of Seattle. So like it's, it's like the canary in the coal mine or the artist. And when we started seeing that happen, we're like, okay, cool. Now does Train need to become like a housing justice <laughs> organization because we're already seeing like all these people that are moving here because they think Spokane's cool enough now are leaving Seattle because Seattle, they can't afford to live there anymore. So how do we, so we were also at the very early stages thinking about and we're, I'm talking about like 2014 here yeah. when nobody was thinking about housing stuff. We were like, I'm worried that if this pace keeps up, we're, uh, we'll, we'll be where we're, we're at in, now. We're in trouble. And, and literally that's, and that's exactly where we are now with like sub sub to your exact point. I opened up Zillow, the, the real estate app for the first time. Cause like people it's were bad. saying there's five houses for sale in Spokane right now. Mm-hmm. Cause they get bought up so quickly. Yep. I literally could not find an active listing on Zillow last night as I was going to bed. I was like, is this thing broken? Am I not connected to the internet? And I I literally, it's like, there's, there's nothing available. A buddy of mine said there was uh, 20 offers on a house within the first hour that one was up. And it's like, that's insane, man. Like, and, and you know, I think I've seen driving downtown over like, I think it's on third or over by the Taco Bell down there. Um, like on Lincoln there, I think they're building a new complex, like some apartments and stuff. I think they're starting to come up, um, which is good to see. But I mean, that's the only building I think I've seen through. And I drive through a good bit of the city quite often. You just don't see things being built. It's not happening fast enough. It's nuts for sure. And and that's the thing. It's like, to your point, it's like, I don't know that we're going to be able 
So gentrification is an interesting word. I don't think we're not going to be able to stop people from moving here and we're not going to be able to stop people who are wealthier than the people who have traditionally lived in neighborhoods from buying in neighborhoods and raising the housing values and everything else. Sure. What we might be able to do (laughs) is help people that have lived in those neighborhoods Generally, the neighbor, and again, the whole thing about gentrification is you're going into underappreciated neighborhoods and, you know, making them hip, invisibilizing potentially the people that have always lived there, you right. know, and created the character of the neighborhood in the first place that you saw value in enough to like come in with your all cash offer and your, your dreams of opening a, uh, a juice place on the corner. Yeah. Well, now this is the culture now. Like, and now, now it's, it's like, Kendall Yards. Well, <laughs> well, but even even like Perry, you know, like Perry, sure. Perry's East Central. And for the longest time, and now kind of Perry has branded itself as separate from East Central, but it's the heart of East Central, right? Yeah. And so, um, and housing prices in Perry are mostly unattainable for the people who have traditionally lived in Perry. Right. Now. And, and that was, even five years ago, I feel like yeah. it, in the last five years, it's just been, it's been insane. Totally. Know? And so, so the it's like what what can we do to at least help people remain? Yeah, and that's the that's the thing that's like obsesses me right now. Yeah, it's like what what kind of policy can we build now? Like Seattle might be screwed forever, or there might have mm-hmm. to be a crash. Seattle might have to become Detroit before it becomes affordable for artists again. Right? Can we mitigate that in, incoming flood? And I don't know if we can or not, but I that's got to be. I think that's got to be the main project for the foreseeable future because people are coming here. Like a thousand people from out of state are moving to Spokane County every month and have been for the past 25 months. So it's no longer, we we no longer have to convince people how to come here. What I think we need to spend the vast majority of our time doing is figuring out how to help people remain. Yeah. If any of that sounds interesting to you, I would love for you to come check out rangemedia.co, www.rangemedia.co. It's a, a newsletter and um, podcast, like I said. It's free for everybody always, but if you uh, like what we're doing and you want to support us, you can do it for like 10 bucks a month, like Patreon style, but it's on it's on Substack. So um, we really are trying to like build something that's sustainable, that is community focused, that's not super reliant on advertisers. That's why we're going for membership stuff. So we want it to be, for Spokane and by Spokane and without like an insane amount of like pressure. And this, this shit happens naturally. It's like people advertise in your magazine. If you do something that is a little bit that they don't like, or that goes against their interests, they put pressure on you, you know? And when they're giving you thousands of dollars for a, for a full page ad that, that their voice carries, their voice rings louder than the voice of just your average reader, right? It's just, it's just human nature. It's going to be the way it works. Uh, so I'm trying to avoid that and, and create more of like a public television, like a PBS model or an NPR model of like, Hey, help us if you can, but it's going to be free for everyone always, because I don't think, and I've never thought that news and civic engagement and and the tools to become a more and better informed person should be like held behind a gate of your ability to pay for that information so like what we're trying to do is make it free for everybody 
uh, to get this information. And then the other thing that we try to do all the time is like give people action items. Like this is not good news. This is not going to be a fun podcast for you to watch. It's not going to be a fun newsletter for you to listen to in terms. It's like, it's not like you're watching Tim and Eric, but it will, it, we always try to provide action items so that if people are like, Oh my God, this is, this is fucked up. I got to do something about it. There's, there's a way to take action and a way to at least hopefully make your voice heard. Cause ultimately it's a journalism project, but it's about sort of helping people build power and find a place where they can make their voice heard if they feel strongly about things. And you know, you don't have to feel strongly about everything we talk about, but if you do, there'll be an action item for you there for you to take to, to help help us all get together and, and make, make this city what we want it to be. So that was uh, www.rangemedia.co. God, you got it on the first try, man. Holy shit. And, uh, Cool. Well, thanks, Luke. Thanks for talking. Thanks for having me on, man. This is fun. Yeah, this is awesome. So, I just wanted to thank everyone for listening to the episode today, as well as the uh, previous episode that I had released. Um, I think my next guest is going to be Angus, and so I'm hopefully going to be talking to him this weekend and should have that episode out next week. Um, I hope everyone has a fantastic weekend, and uh, I'll talk to you later. <laughs>